0: This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AAAA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and I am delighted to be here in studio at the ANU's Crawford School with my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. We are very happy to welcome another guest in the studio today, David Gruen, who is a Deputy Secretary at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Alan will introduce David, but can I first offer our usual thanks to Charlie Henschel for audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, as well as Martin Pearce for technical support here in studio. With that, let me hand things off to Alan. Thanks,
1: Darren. Well, as you said, Dr. David Gruen is the Deputy Secretary Economic in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, and he's also Australia's G20 Sherpa. Now, for listeners who don't know what that is. It's the sort of droll term used in international diplomacy to describe the senior officials whose job it is to guide the leaders to the summit by preparing the route for them and making sure they're properly equipped and that their safety harnesses are fitted properly. Before joining the department in September 2014, David was executive director of the Macroeconomic Group at the Australian Treasury. He joined Treasury in January 2003 from the position of head of the Economic Research Department at the Reserve Bank of Australia. He was a visiting lecturer in the Economics Department and at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University from August 1991 to June 1993. But his career began in an entirely different direction with a PhD in Physiology from Cambridge University. The economics came later with a second PhD from the ANU in 1991. So welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Alan, and thank you, Darren. I've just been reading out the CV of an overachiever, if ever I came across one, David. And I should mention that for reasons of time, I had to leave out large chunks of other substantial contributions you've made, including really close associations with a number of Australian universities and research Uh, institutes. What's going on here? Uh, How did you end up as an economist?
2: Well, Alan, as uh, is, I suspect, true of a lot of people, I hadn't mapped out what I was going to do from the start. As a child and as a teenager, I was excited by the hard sciences and particularly maths and physics. And I did an undergraduate degree in physics in fact, theoretical physics, and then decided that I wasn't smart enough to become a theoretical physicist, which I think was the right judgment. (laughs) Uh, At that stage, morphed into biophysics and ended up doing a PhD in Cambridge in in biophysics in the a physiology department, but but doing computer modelling. I was one of the few people in the Physiology department who didn't have an animal um, who wasn't working on this thirst of dogs or some other uh, esoteric thing. I was actually doing computer modeling, and then eventually uh, I actually did a couple of p- uh, postdocs at ANU in science, and then got bored, and decided that my father had a more interesting life than the more senior scientists who I knew, and he was an he was an ANU academic in economics and. After kind of. um, And a very famous famous one. Thanks, Alan. Uh, And and after kind of a a sharp intake of breath, I I, uh, crossed the Rubicon and took up economics and haven't looked back. You're the nearest public
1: servant I can think of to what in the university world is called a public intellectual. That is, you've been willing to engage within the proper constraints imposed on any uh, public servant. You've been prepared to engage uh, with the broader community in discussions of the work you do and the issues that you're wrestling with. And the fact that you're here for this interview is another example of that. I've long believed that public debate in this country would benefit from more engagement by senior public servants helping to illuminate some of the underlying issues that policy is dealing with. But you're very rare. So how have you been able to get away with this? And how can we encourage more of your colleagues to join you?
2: That's a good question. I guess I was always attracted by the idea of of talking about the issues that I'm grappling with, you know, with a wider audience. Um, sometimes it's a way of getting your ideas straight to, to write them down or to talk about them. And so it's it always appealed to me. I, um, I could, in a different life, have been an academic, uh, and I guess... Uh, in the first phase of my economics, when I was working at the Reserve Bank, especially in the research department, that is t- to a considerable extent a much more academic environment than the public service in Canberra has the opportunity to be. So I kind of had a gradual transition away from what was quasi academic to something that's more in the front line of developing policy. But it's always, I've often found the issues that uh, I'm grappling with of interest and of an immediacy that, that often academics don't have an opportunity to, to partake in that sort of thing. So it's always appealed to me to to talk about these things. And I've certainly found that I'm pushing on an open door, both in terms of the, there being a, a ready audience for that sort of thing, but also that um, my political masters have been comfortable with me doing that, provided that I'm seeking to illuminate and not, not being partisan.
1: Why don't more of your
2: colleagues see it that way? Uh, why, why are you so unusual? Uh, I think it's kind of would be regarded as sort of extracurricular ac- activity. Mm. And so uh, not, su- not, not surprisingly, um, g- governments are focused on their own a- a- agenda as they o- obviously, it, it, that obviously makes perfect sense. And so there there is uh, the incentive to spend a a very large share of your time uh, working on the things that are of immediate importance to the government. And it takes energy and time out of that uh, agenda to uh, craft uh, the sorts of interventions that you can put into the public domain. So being an economist, you'd expect me to say this, that it's the incentives. And so I've always found it uh, interesting and enjoyable, but um, I guess as time has proceeded, I've been able to spend less time doing that, and I do it less. It's much more intermittent now than it used to be because the uh, the demands of a day to day work of the government are pressing, and 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 I absolutely understand that. Yeah, well, great that great that you're here, and under those uh,
1: circumstances, uh, you're now working in PM and C, which is the most protean of. Government departments, in that it changes its shape, uh, sometimes quite radically, in response mm. to the priorities of the Prime Minister and the uh, government, and to the particular sort of working preferences of, of the PM. Indigenous Affairs was part of the department, and now it's not. You know, in times past, multicultural affairs have been mm. in, in there, and so on. Uh, task forces get formed, complete their missi- m- mission, and other issues emerge. But the economic uh, group is always one of the core areas. You've worked in the two other great institutions of public economic policy in Australia, Treasury and the Reserve Bank. Can you talk about what it is that PM&C does in this space that's different and special?
2: Mm, certainly. Um, let, just for clarity, um, Indigenous Affairs has remained in the portfolio of PMC. That's right, it's now an agency itself, rather yeah. than mm. department. Yeah, just mm. thought I would make that clear. Um, so I guess uh, I think it's the case that having worked in both uh, the Reserve Bank and the Treasury is a strong foundation for working in PMC on broadly economic issues. Both, uh, d- depending on their area of responsibility, both the Reserve Bank and the Treasury are. The agency or or department that have primary carriage of just about all the economic uh, agenda. Well, there are obviously other departments that have part of the economic agenda as well, but the prime minister. And I think this would be a statement that it would it would that is has been true now for a very long time. Prime ministers to be successful have to have have to take a serious interest in the economy, and in our system, they get uh, their advice obviously via their ministers, but also directly from uh, from uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet. And we predominantly don't do exactly what, what Treasury does. We, uh, we um, f- to a very considerable extent, work w- with Treasury or, for that matter, with the Reserve Bank on an issue that might be something that uh, the Prime Minister is interested in. So I guess, as is, as is the case more broadly Prime Minister and Cabinet's role is as a coordinator, as a convener, and as a, a kind of smaller team that comes to its own view about things, but also uses the expertise, that the, the deeper expertise that's in, that's in the economic departments, or for that matter, in the Reserve Bank. And there wouldn't be a week that would go by without me uh, um, talking to someone in the Treasury about some issue that is uh, germane uh, to the government's Current current interests. It
1: also means, I guess, that you can work uh, more easily across the different areas of uh, government because you're smaller and you've got people from the other disciplines like national security and so on in inside the department and working, you know, next door to you in some cases.
2: Absolutely, and part. I mean, a considerable part of the role is. Uh, developing strong relationships across the public service so that when something comes up, you're in a position to know who to talk to and get up to speed more quickly because your time is precious.
1: Well, let's turn to the G20. You came back recently from Osaka. I was really jealous to see uh, you in that newspaper photograph of the dinner guests with uh, President Trump But given the fate of the uh, British ambassador in Washington, I'm not even going to ask you to go anywhere near that. Before we get to the outcome of the meeting, though, I just wonder if you could explain to us what the Sherpas do and the work that goes into preparing a meeting like this. There's obviously a, a whole ecosystem that lies under the
2: summit. Uh, indeed, there is. So just a historical footnote, which is that the language comes from the G7 from from decades ago. So the G7 mm. came up with the language of Sherpas and the G20 simply, um, simply um, plagiarised it. Uh, so we're all... Um, it, it, I do get um, quizzical looks when I say that I'm Australia's G20 Sherpa. Um, people <laughs> look at you like they're not quite sure precisely what that might mean until I explain... Uh, the uh, the the metaphor of uh, getting the leader to the summit. And well,
1: you're fit enough to hike the mountain, <laughs> David. I just see by looking at you.
2: <laughs> anyway, so uh, but to, but to come to the substance of the question, um, so. Um, the uh, the Sherpas meet three or four times a year, and the meetings would be two days. They come either from central agencies like the Prime Minister's Department or a Cabinet Office. That's one model, uh, and plenty of countries use that model. And the alternative model is that they come from Foreign Affairs departments, and so that it's that they're diplomats who um, uh, do that role for a while and then go off and do and uh, and do something else, like become. Ambassador in Washington, or something mm-hmm. like that, um, uh, to use a topical example, and so the benefit of um, meeting three or four times a year is that you really get to know other Sherpas very well, and you and a, there is a camaraderie built from the fact that We all understand we're working for our governments. We're not the final decision maker. We're in similar positions, and we understand that if a if a Sherpa from another country is um, is putting a a, a strong position that they uh, that they will not move from, there's an implicit understanding of the nature of the of the position they find themselves in. So we rarely take it personally. This is a cadre of people who kind of understand how they fit in the system. Many of them are quite clo- sit quite close to their leaders. So some of them are principal private secretaries of, to, their, to their leaders, others are, um, but most of them have a reasonably close relationship with the leader uh, for whom they work. The benefit is people get you get to know each other and that's an opportunity to build coalitions. It's also an opportunity when something comes up, you know who to ring. Between Sherpa meetings, I would um, often have phone calls with, you know, I don't know, three or four or five um, other Sherpas to find out where they're positioned on things or what they've heard. So it's, it's obviously work that goes on in the background, but you do develop a sufficiently close relationship so that, for instance... At a leaders meeting, if a leader wanted to meet with Prime Minister Morrison, the Sherpa would have no um, compunction, just walking up to me and saying, "Look, my leader would like to meet with um, Prime Minister Morrison, or, and you know, can we just organise it?" And you can do that, as a mm-hmm. and that's kind of one of the benefits of the of the leaders meeting is that um, people are all there, and you don't have to have had an elaborate. Setting up of a bilateral, there's plenty of that that goes on. But you can just have a ten minute or fifteen minute conversation because you've thought of something you'd like to talk to that other leader about. Mm.
1: So, from your point of view, uh, how how much is there for the leaders to do when they get there? I mean, so how much preparation have the Sherpas done, and are the leaders simply a photo opportunity and and you know signatures on the communiqué, or is there a hell of a lot of work to do by the time the leaders get
2: there, or does that depend yeah. on that? Well, I suppose it depends on the issue. A bit. So the answer is that there, there's quite a lot of paddling that goes on under the surface, um, and on quite a lot of issues that are not that are not contentious, uh, it all gets sorted by Sherpas, and uh, and that can happen kind of well before the summit. Although there usually is a Sherpa meeting. In fact, this is the standard model. There's a Sherpa meeting in the days before the summit for final communique drafting. And for a a significant proportion of the agenda, that all gets decided by Sherpas. But in recent years, we've had at least two um, contentious issues, um, climate and trade, where there there really are substantial differences between um, major countries, and in those circumstances, uh, Sherpas can take, the, can take that only so far and ultimately it, uh, you, you can end up in a circumstance where um, the leaders themselves have to resolve um, the outcome. Uh, and the other thing is that part of what's valuable about the G20 leaders meeting is the plenary sessions where, they, where, there, where there are um, contributions that everybody hears, but there is every... Each of these meetings sets aside a, a decent uh, amount of time for bilateral meetings and all leaders use the opportunity to catch up with, uh, with other leaders who they want to catch up with. And so most leaders, I would think, would have a bilateral uh, program that would have perhaps to five or so um, meetings in the margins of the, uh, of the G20 meeting. And of course, the last two have been the site for meetings between President Xi and President Trump. So they had a meeting in the margins of the G twenty at Buenos Aires, and they did it again at um, at Osaka. So there is a it does provide a locus for um, for the opportunity for people to to get together and 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 talk. So I, the leaders actually have a busy time of it.
1: Yeah. Well, look, turning turning to the uh, Osaka outcomes, Darren and I talked a little bit on our last podcast um, about this. Uh, It was obviously a disappointing outcome in many respects, including the inability of leaders to address some of the real pressing uh, issues uh, facing the multilateral system like climate change and the future of WTO. Bilaterally, we got no real progress on the uh, US-China trade dispute. Shiro Armstrong, from just along the corridor here at the ANU, wrote in a blog post afterwards, uh, the Osaka uh, G20 summit may yet be remembered in history as the moment the uh, rules-based order was lost. That's dramatic, and I know you have a more optimistic view of the outcome. So could you give us the good news and talk about as well how you see the future of the G20? Because... For Australia, obviously, it's our main opportunity to take part in these, uh, in the top levels of the global debate.
2: Yeah, I th- I think Shiro is um, obviously trying to get his article in the newspaper read. So it, he he's did. being a, he's a being being a bit melodramatic, and um, I can understand why he's doing that. I guess the point I would make, and in fact I did make this point in a speech I gave on the G20. Um, uh, in November of last year, is that the G20 is a an opportunity for leaders to talk to each other and for consensus building about important uh, global issues. But if a major country um, or if a major country has views that are inconsistent with the with other countries you can you can use the G20 to better understand where that country's coming from or where that is coming from but the but there is no sense in which the G20 provides uh, an authorizing environment for the global for the global uh, commons to to assert itself uh, it, it's a consensus body and we're in a world where both on cli- on the Paris accord and on the role of the WTO, um, the US administration and President Trump have a different view from the rest of the membership. And you can, if you like, say that it's a disappointment of the G20 that they that they have not managed to convince President Trump that the, he should re-enter, that he should rejoin the Paris Accord or that he should uh, accept the WTO, uh, imperfect as it is, as a centre of the rules-based system. That's not we can have those discussions and those sort of discussions occur but at the end of the day sovereign countries are going to make their own decisions and 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 I think it's unrealistic to expect a global forum at which you get together the 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 20 systemic economies from around the world to to overturn what are the the decisions of sovereign countries it would be one thing if a a small or medium sized country had a serious issues with some of the central things in the in the in the global architecture that would be one thing but if one of the largest economies in the world has that then the rest of us have to come to terms with that and I think it's unrealistic to say well that's a failure of the g20 I think it, what it is is a reassessment of the global economic architecture by one of the key countries and we all have to accept that um, we would we would prefer that they had come to a different position on those issues, but that's the world we're in.
0: But that, of course, isn't the only thing uh, the G20 is doing. And I I wanted to sort of ask you a few questions about um, what sort of the prospects are for cooperation from the G20 into the future and what we can maybe learn about international cooperation at the intergovernmental level from the G20. The first is, you know, I understand that Prime Minister Morrison was instrumental in, in bringing across um, an agreement on on social media and, and, and issues of use of social media to um, broadcast terrorist attacks and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and frame it in the context of what it's a good example of and what other kinds of cooperation might be possible through this G20 uh, mechanism into the future? Sure. So um, the G20 has
2: always Provided an opportunity for leaders to draw attention to or provide political support for an issue that has just emerged. So, if you go back a couple of years, uh, a few years, there was a uh, with the with the Ebola outbreak. This was actually during our um, presidency in 2014. There was a, quite a few members of the membership wanted to make a wanted to make a specific statement by the G20 on the Ebola outbreak, and they went and they did that. This year, in the aftermath of the Christchurch um, massacre, the Prime Minister um, was um, obviously went to Christchurch very soon after that massacre, which was on the 15th of March, and was, uh, was moved by what he saw and by uh, the circumstances and the fact that something like that could happen in a place that is, um, that is sort of peaceful and, uh, and not in any way kind of in the in the maelstrom of uh, of um, of issues uh, you know whether it be the Middle East or in the middle of Europe or somewhere mm-hmm. he was struck by the fact that something like this could happen in Christchurch and the and obviously it's multi-dimensional but one of the dimensions is that uh, it was live streamed mm-hmm. on um, social media and went viral and was designed to go viral and the Prime Minister uh, uh, immediately thought that this was something where the G20 could add its weight to uh, imploring um, social media companies to do more. Um, they're, they're very uh, successful. They're, they're global... Uh, and they um, have tremendous capacity to work out what you'd like to buy from your from what things you've put on social media. Mm. So they have uh, considerable capacity to um, bond to situations like this. And so he his view was that uh, this was something that that it made sense for the G20 to take a take a strong position on. And so to give you a sense of how this works, he wrote to Prime Minister Abe. Suggesting that this was an important issue to put on the G20's agenda, I prosecuted it at Sherpa meetings and got broad support for mm-hmm. the idea. And then um, Australia drove a, a de, de, uh, decided early on that, that uh, the Prime Minister would uh, decided that he would like to have a standalone statement in, the, in at the Osaka summit on this issue, and we worked with uh, like-minded countries to. Uh, build a coalition for this, and eventually manage to convince the whole membership mm-hmm. that this was an important issue that that was that was worthy of a um, a statement. And I think it's an example where um, uh, the the G twenty provides its um, the, the fact that you get the G 20s imprimatur behind something like this is is meaningful. It's not legally binding, but it adds to the. The pressure that is building on social media companies to do much more in this area to uh, to um, identify this sort of violent extremist material and 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 take it down. We were very careful to keep our um, initiative focused, particularly on um, violent extremist material, and not things that where there could be some some disagreement about whether we were infringing on free speech. Mm. We were not talking about free speech. We were talking about uh, video
0: images of people murdering other people. Mm. If I could then take that question and, and zoom out. Yeah. Um, yeah. The speech you mentioned that you gave about the G20, uh, I believe you, you, you made a comment that the G20 has avoided much of the bureaucracy besetting other international fora. And so the theorist in me then wonders, you know, are there lessons that the international community can can draw from the G20's particular structure um, and whether or not that is going to be a more common model of cooperation into the future? So, for example, is a scaled down bureaucracy going to be an increasingly important feature to facilitate cooperation? Uh, I think there's probably more than one potential model. The benefit of... uh,
2: So, one... one, um uh, implication of having a standing secretariat is that it becomes a, a distinct centre of power. So, if you set up a secretariat, it's going to come up with its own ideas about what the G20 ought to do, mm. and um, it's going to um, lobby each successive president about the initiatives that it is um, uh, invested mm. in. So, there is a sense in which th- this is a this is a very different model. This this is a model where the governing body, to the extent that there is one in the G20, is called the troika, which is the, the current president, the the, past, the immediate past president, and the immediate uh, next president. And that little grouping helps the president to uh, work out the uh, initiatives that they want to push. But it is a distinct feature of the organisation that there is no standing secretariat. Countries get a fair bit of warning, get a reasonable amount of warning about when they're going to become president. So mm. they have time to think about what they want to do. And so it, it, I think it's a, a distinct feature. I don't know whether it's a feature that's going to spread to other organisations, but um, I think it definitely has benefits. Um, and um, it does mean that countries become very invested in uh, being the president of the G20 because, the, the, because they do all the organising and they, make, uh, they have a, a fair bit of freedom to decide what topics they're going to prosecute. Australia has had the position as you would imagine we we care deeply about the functioning of the G20 it's our seat at the at the table and um, if you were to reconfigure the G20 in a smaller entity uh, Australia might well not be there but we so we have um, put forward suggestions and um, that the G20 has to be careful not to become a Christmas tree with endless initiatives. Mm. We think there are benefits in keeping it focused uh, uh, to the extent that you can and having sunset clauses on. uh, So a presidency might have some topic that it wants to prosecute, but that doesn't mean that that topic has to remain on the agenda of the G20 forever Mm. and a day.
1: Mm. Can I turn to a, a broader question about the global economy? You've been thinking about these questions for a long time and you've had Senior positions, while we worked our way through the Asian financial crisis and the global financial crisis, and now as we uh, uh, try to work out where the world is going, I want to come back to some of the to the contemporary issues. But first, I wondered if you could say something about how your how the global economy has surprised you in the time you've been working on it. What did we get wrong? about it and what
2: lessons can we learn? It's a good big question. I've got a couple of things that, are, that I'll, I'll say on this. One is, um, so if I go back to my days at the Reserve Bank, the Reserve Bank uh, very sensibly does a, uh, a volume on the previous decade um, once every decade. Uh, And it it obviously looks at both domestic and international economic issues in that volume. And in the 2000 volume, which was looking over the 1990s, there is almost no mention of China in that volume, Mm. almost none at all. In fact, the uh, commentary, to the extent that it's talking about the globe, it's talking about the United States, and it's also talking about looking back a decade and saying that a decade previously namely sort of late 80s everybody was concerned that the japanese were going to take over one industry after another and that they were going to ultimately become dominant and the that volume sort of reflected on the fact that that wasn't a very good prediction as it mm. turned out that the that that, that that particular extrapolation of the japanese in the 80s turned out not to be uh, not to um, hold water in the 1990s so uh, so so in the t- in the 2000 volume conference volume there's almost no mention of china despite the f- and and why is that interesting because the chinese had opened up with deng Xiaoping in the late 1970s and it had been growing rapidly for an extended period and one of the things we all do is extrapolate past behavior and if you'd mm. extrapolated the past behavior of China over a subsequent decade, you would have come to the conclusion that they were going to become a big deal,
1: and and that's uh, I and mean, that's odd because we, because we, we often use that extrapolating uh, past behavior as a criticism uh, in the sort of intelligence agencies and so and uh, so, and so on. So it's, uh, it's odd that it wasn't done. Yeah, I,
2: I agree. And then if you go to the next volume, which was actually published in two thousand and eleven of the two thousands. One of the the, China is everywhere in that volume. Mm. And what is interesting is one of the there's a very nice chart which shows that that all the way through the 2000s uh, economic forecasters were expecting the extraordinary growth in China to come off right through that decade. China continued to outperform. Um, I mean, it's some time ago now, but the Chinese grew at roughly 10 percent. The real economy grew at roughly 10 percent. Per annum through that decade. I mean, it's not not exactly smooth, but anyway, it was an extraordinary experience, and economic um, uh, economic forecasters at the time kept expecting that to come off, and it didn't. And it that was part of a part of the uh, uh, part, that that was partly the reason why we ended up with such a big mining boom in Australia because. It wasn't just economic commentators who weren't expecting this this strength to continue. It was also mining company executives who mm. did not expect the demand for um the commodities that they produced to to continue to rise at the rate it did rise. So I am uh, increasingly modest about <laughs> what about what we are about mm. about how good we are at working out what's going to happen next. Uh, that just is, uh, there's that marvellous uh, uh, piece of work by uh, is it Philip Tetlow about the inability of people, experts, to actually do a particularly good job of forecasting. It's actually extraordinarily difficult. And the global financial crisis is another example. Um, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, there's all these hints that something is uh, is amiss. But um, if you read the material at the time, you find lots of um, sophisticated observers, like in the IMF, saying that the financial system was so much more resilient now because you had all this sophisticated um, risk management going on. Mm-hmm. All so- and, and with the benefit of hindsight and, and all sorts of people saying that the financial system is pretty good at self-regulating, stuff that if you read it with the benefit of hindsight, it, you, you just cringe.
1: So that means I'm really uh, reluctant to ask uh, the next question, which is what happens next? Of the issues we're dealing with now, the one with the broadest implications for Australia is probably the speed with which China and the United States are redefining their own relationship and therefore the structure of the international economy. For me, in a sort of five years worth of surprises every every morning from know, Brexit to, uh, to the election of Donald Trump. The thing that, which has surprised me most, I think, is the speed with which the US and China have moved from engagement uh, through competition and to talk now of decoupling and even a, a new Cold War. So with all the modesty <laughs> that you, you properly reminded us that we, uh, that we need, what do you think is going on here and what are the
2: implications for Australia? So I think I agree with you, Alan, about the speed of redefinition of the relationship between China and the United States. I think it has happened quickly. And I think, um, I think one observation is that th- there was a, a, a model of successful development was developed several decades ago in East Asia and copied by a series of countries, um, export-led growth uh, opening up Um, and exposing your exporters to global markets, and that way they became efficient. And I I think one observation that's that's germane is that China is by far the biggest economy to do something like that. And the implications of China modernising and growing rapidly via export-led growth were that the the implication... There was one set of implications when they were were still a small economy, but as they became uh, an economy the size they are now... It had uh, such big implications on the developed world that has led to uh, uh, an awful lot of friction with the developed world because they are so big, and because, uh, understandably, uh, some of the th- some of the. Um, some of the things that are part of the economic model, you know, t- taking IP, technology transfer to the dom- to domestic uh, firms in situations where people where companies want to want to invest in China, uh, large subsidies, which uh, industrial subsidies which generate overproduction, those things don't matter so much if you're if you're small, but when you're when you're large, they matter much more. Uh, having said that, um, so I think the fact that china is as big as it is has generated uh, has generated some of uh, the reaction uh, but i also it's also clear that chinese growth is not zero sum there's no question that um, the rest of us have benefited from china becoming richer and becoming um, technologically more advanced the us has benefited from that australia has clearly benefited from it and as, as for the comments about decoupling. China is embedded in the global economy, and the idea that we will see widespread decoupling um, with the Chinese economy, that's very hard to, to envisage. You can absolutely understand that there may be particular sectors where, where there are issues, but the, the idea that we're going to decouple the Chinese economy broadly speaking, from the rest of the global economy, that would be an extraordinarily disruptive thing to do and would be, would be damage, certainly very damaging for Australia.
0: If I could move from the sort of the impact of global politics on the world we live in to, to domestic politics, um, uh, you gave a speech in Tokyo last year where you highlighted the work of David Orta of MIT and his co-authors regarding the, the China shock um, which in short order found that you know, American jobs, many American jobs were lost as a result of China's joining the WTO. And you noted in, in, in your speech that their paper was silent on the additional jobs created um, by Chinese demand. And, and you mentioned that in your answer just then to talk about the positive sum nature of Chinese growth. And I fully agree with you, but I wanted to sort of ask a question about the politics of the distinction between the aggregate benefits and the positive sum nature of trade overall, and the specific costs to various groups in an economy, which you yourself acknowledged in that speech when you said that quite politically influential opposition to free and open trade is likely to continue. In, in IR theory terms, the rules-based order in the post-war era enjoyed popular support because mass publics around the world received not just aggregate benefits from the creation of multilateral regimes like the WTO and the Bretton Woods Institutions, but the rising tide of post-war prosperity really lifted all, or at least most, boats. And it meant that no major groups in society were made worse off and i think part of the stresses that the order faces today is because it has lost the support of large constituencies within western countries and so when we talk typically of reform of international institutions we're focusing on the rebalancing of authority from the West to the rest to increase the representativeness among um, the, you know, the community of nation states. But you know, in, your, in your speech last year at the Lowy Institute, you linked effective global governance to giving rising powers more opportunities to influence and shape the global order. But I worry that focusing on, on you know, sharing power around at the nation state level is not going to shore up the domestic foundations of support. How do you think about that tension?
2: Mm. So
0: I think the
2: issues to do with groups in, um, in our economy, in Western economies that are being hurt by uh, open trade are very similar to the issues of other groups that are being um, hurt, uh, displaced by technology. I mm. think that there are lots of commonalities between those two, uh, between those two disruptive forces. In both cases, uh, there's, a, there's an aggregate benefit f- to the society, but not everybody shares in that benefit. A- and I think um, the answer to both is, certainly in Australia's case, is to not cut yourself off either from technological advance or from the benefits of open trade. But it is to take much more seriously the fact that that the benefits are not automatically widely shared. Mm. there's a speech that Ben Bernanke gave a couple of years ago in which he drew attention to uh, i think i'm not, I'm not sure whether it was in the aftermath of the election of uh, of President Trump. I, I think it might have been, and he was certainly reflecting on the fact that significant parts of the u s uh, community had turned away from trade and were clearly hurting. And he gave a, a list of things that he thought that uh, you know, on reflection, it would, have be, would be better if the US did more of. Mm. And if you read that list, it, it's actually, it, you can tick those things off as things we do. Mm. So it's taking seriously, providing um, support for people who, um, who are down on their luck uh, it's helping communities to adjust. If you think about the difference between the way uh, between the, the the adjustment that Detroit's been through versus the d- adjustment that Geelong, Newcastle, and Wollongong have been through, you get what I mean in the sense that they were uh, they're, they're all parts of Australia which have um, lost out on heavy manufacturing, mm. either car making or steel making, but they're now thriving communities and and, and, a, and a significant part of that is a conscious public policy decision to do something about them rather than just assume that everybody would move mm. away from them. So in a range of ways, Australian public policy takes seriously the idea that um, there need to be incentives for people to uh, to do well in society, to have aspirations, but there also need to be um, mechanisms for, for not... Allowing intergenerational disadvantage to become
0: entrenched. Is there a role for multilateralism or international organisations, you know, to, to address issues like this? You know, our successes. Can we communicate them? I mean, can this be part of our diplomacy? You know, how can we bring this up to the international level? I guess is my question.
2: So I think the I think the Australian model is actually revered in some parts of the world because uh, G20 um, were, last year was in Argentina. I got to travel to. Chile and Argentina uh, several times Mm. through that year. And you get asked to come and talk to senior government people in both of those places about how Australia achieved what it achieved. I mean, they're commodity exporters, we're we're commodity exporters. They're sort of amazed that we've had 27, 28 years of continuous economic growth. But anyway, I think there are plenty of parts of the world that have seen what Australia has done and regard it as a, as something to be emulated. And I think the message that we send to the world is being open to ideas, being open to um, being open to trade, being open to skilled migration, are uh, things that strengthen um, mm. that strengthen the uh, uh, your economy and also, um, for that matter, make it a more interesting place to live.
1: But we're really uh, unusual in the world at the moment in both sides of politics here, still the values of uh, openness. Uh, I, th- I think we're almost unique, uh, really, certainly among the G20 countries in, in, in that being the centre ground still of, uh, of politics rather than the ground over
2: which you're fighting. I think that's right. I, I think long may it continue. But I also think that it's it's made possible by the fact that we have uh, a broad agreement that um, uh, there are obviously differences, but broad agreement that you don't just assume that when some parts of the country are doing poorly, the people will just leave from those parts. There's a there's a Mm. there's a There's an agreement, or the 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 details are different, but but there is uh, there's a strong consensus that, and I think it's partly intergenerational. I think it's an understanding that you don't want to let uh, parts of the uh, of the of the country uh, fester in uh, a sense of having economic uh, uh,
0: difficulties that no one is going to do anything about. Mm, That's really interesting. If I can turn um, to this question that Alan and I have grappled with. Uh, many times on the podcast over the past twelve months on economics versus security, uh, but I, can I ask the question in, in this way? Uh, I found an interview, that, a very long interview that you gave uh, to the Sydney Morning Herald about a decade ago, which was just in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and you said that quote I think economists have a kind of inbuilt preference for being influenced by fundamental explanations." End quote. Which I understood as being a critique of, of your profession's failure to view the imbalances that caused the GFC as a problem. And you spoke a bit about this earlier. And I can see arguments that um, in, in the debate on economics versus security in this country, especially in the context of China and the United States, where it seems to me that many participants might be themselves influenced by fundamental explanations, whether they are economists or strategists or experts in the United States or in China. Do you see parallels in your diagnosis of the policy blind spots prior to the GFC in today's debate?
2: I think there are parallels. Um, Let me just go back to to the global financial crisis just briefly. I think the The thing that was uh, that was the the kind of dominant economic paradigm at the time was that the important economic actors in that environment knew what they were doing and understood the environment in which in which they were operating. And we found out that wasn't true. We found out that um, particularly in financial markets, people hadn't, didn't take a long view. They, they'd taken, they took a a very short-term view about what, what, what the nature of the risks that they might be taking looked like. And they were not actually acting in a way that was in the long-term interests of the companies that they were working for. And, but the dominant paradigm was one of, you can leave these people to their own devices Mm. because they know what they're doing. Mm. Um, and that, became particularly clear with the risk management um, uh, uh, practices that they had which turned out to be woefully inadequate, even mm. though at, uh, even though they were in, they were very sophisticated. They were sophisticated, but they weren't very good. Um, so in terms of how to think about the parallels in the kind of debate between economists and strategists, I think there's no question these are two different tribes and they come to similar problems with, Perspectives that are that have quite distinct differences, and let me draw. Let me try and make that um, more concrete. If you're thinking about the functioning of the economy broadly defined, most economists are impressed by the capacity of decentralized markets to organize economic activity and drive innovation. So they they're not overly imp- economists are not overly impressed by the capacity of a centrally planned um mm. economic uh, economic activity to do a particularly good good job. Mm. and um, and and so I think economists come to economic questions with a frame of mind which says, when you're talking about setting up an economic environment to generate long-term growth innovation, you don't need to do this in a centrally planned way. And in fact, if you do it in a centrally planned way, you'll miss all sorts of things that a decentralised market will uh, you let people make their own choices and let the market uh, choose which one of those things survives and which one doesn't. Now, take the contrast with military and security fields where authoritarian regimes operate without the constraints imposed on democratic governments and that has implications for their capacity to mobilize military and security power so the things that security analysts look at uh, there are perhaps benefits in being in having centralized control over there aren't proper markets in mm. in security in security or military um uh, uh, in, in, in decisions that get made about mi- military and security power, there mm. are there are things that centralized control. Whether that centralized control actually is in a democratic country or whether it's in an in authoritarian country, there are th- things about doing things in a centralized way that impress security analysts because that's the way that you uh, project power. Mm. So there, so. So when you are tackling an issue which has both economic and security angles to it, um, I think it's true that security analysts and economists bring some very different mindsets to bear on these issues, and so there's a there's definitely a necessity for both of these dimensions to to um, be taken into account. And in fact, um, because uh, that more and more issues have got important security more and more economic issues have have important security and foreign policy dimensions to them A, at pmnc we have taken very seriously the idea that we need to more carefully integrate advice that comes from the economic security and foreign policy parts of our department and we've taken some very conscious steps to join those up in a way that's much more that's much more conscious and coherent than we did in the past.
1: Well, one of the purposes of the Australia in the World podcast is to bring those various tribes together. So uh, many thanks for helping us to do that, uh, David, and I hope we can do it again
0: sometime. Thanks, Alan. Great. Thanks very much, David.